0: The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tide, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers over by the kids zone sign. If it's their first time, please go with them and you can get them checked in.
1: We've been studying in Mark, we're taking a brief break from Mark for Holy Week, Um, but it's fascinating because one of the things that you've noticed in our study of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus keeps doing these fantastic and incredible things and then he turns to the people that have experienced them and he says, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. We've seen that happen all the way through Mark 8 and even into Mark 9. Yet here, even as we shift to Luke and to Holy Week, it's the first time that he sort of says, it's okay, let him talk, let him tell you who I am. It's a big, it's a monumental shift in the gospel. In fact, the entire reason the gospel is, exists is to describe to you this week. And so you're supposed to experience this radical shift in Jesus' tone where he said, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, and then... Let the rocks cry out if these people will be silent. The context is that the time is narrowing. The focus now is on what it's about to be done. The religious leaders want to kill Jesus. The disciples and others want to crown Jesus this military king. And yet, all the while, Jesus is laser focused on what he's about to do. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? If we could adequately understand who it is uh, that arrives in this triumphal entry, it would change everything. But Father, we confess to you that we come here tired from our lives. We come here distracted from the things that we wanted to get done this week or the things that we have ahead of us. We come here shamed from the sins that we still haven't put to death. We come here feeling distant from others, relational breaches. We come needing comfort from loss or just from the limping and the suffering that we've experienced. All of us in this room come for different reasons, and yet we confess to you that we don't fully appreciate who your son is. And we ask by your Holy Spirit, because of your kindness, would you give us a glimpse this morning? Would you pour the Spirit out on your people so that for even a moment we could see Jesus? We could do what the disciples miss, what the religious leaders miss, what the crowds miss. We could see who Jesus is and what he's come for that it would lift our spirits. Father, give us laser focus on your son Jesus this morning and give us your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Who is Jesus? That's the question that the disciples have been asking throughout the early chapters and halfway through, sometimes three quarters through the gospels. Who is Jesus? The disciples have been asking. The religious rulers have been asking, Rome has been asking, who is Jesus? And maybe you've asked that before. Who is Jesus? Is he this good teacher? Is he this sort of prophet from God who's helps us to live a different life or go a different way than we were planning on going? Is he someone who could do miracles, wondrous things? Is he the son of God? Who is Jesus? No one illustrates the tendency to try and define God better than the insightful Will Farrell. <laughs> Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers, with your tiny little fat balled up fists, and Ricky Bobby is interrupted by his father-in-law. But Ricky proceeds and persists. Look, I like the baby version the best, you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. And his partner Cal says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. One of Ricky Bobby's sons says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. And Cal says, I like to think of Jesus with giant eagle's wings, singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band and I'm in the front row. It's a ridiculous conversation, but it's so telling. A whole group of people are sitting around the table talking about how they like to picture their Jesus. And we do the same thing. I like this Jesus who talks about love and grace and unconditional love. I'm not sure I like this Jesus who talks about sex and giving and money. Laying down your life, picking up your cross, and following me. I I like this Jesus. I'm not sure I like my Jesus like that. Ricky Bobby struggles with it. We struggle with it. The people in the text, they don't know. Some are saying, I want my Jesus to be a military ruler, like with a sword and a shield and a big, tall war horse, and I want him to come in and I want him to trample Rome. And Peter and James and John and the disciples are saying, I like my Jesus to just make sure I get a place of prominence. The Jesus who does the things that I want, the Jesus who gives me fame and notoriety. All of these people are saying, This is what I want my Jesus to be like. The reason that I tell you that is because that tendency runs deeply in our own veins. Jesus has just told a parable right before this, right before this where a king goes away on a long journey so that he can embrace his kingdom and come back and in the parable the people decide we don't want this man to be our king we don't want this man to be our king and that text leads straight to this one and see it's a parable about a king who's come for his people and none of them want him none of them want him so let's walk through this text together and acknowledge who Jesus is instead of what we'd like him to be. Well, first of all, the the context of this passage shows that he is our rescuer. The context of this passage shows that he is our rescuer. Do you remember why they're marching into Jerusalem? They're with all these thousands of people that they're marching into Jerusalem and that the reason that they're doing it is they're celebrating Passover. Passover is this Old Testament feast where God actually rescued the people. They'd been slaves for 400 years and he rescues them out of Egypt and he did it using the Passover. The Passover is the, the time when they, from the Old Testament where they had picked up a lamb and they'd slaughtered the lamb and they splashed the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house and that way that the spirit that would come by that would kill all those in Egypt that didn't have blood on their doorposts but it would pass over those that had blood on their doorposts. So it was important, those with a lamb who died in its place didn't have to die. And now here Jesus, the Passover lamb, marches into Jerusalem. He will die so that we don't have to die. It says this in Exodus twelve twenty four: obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. Listen, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. The whole point is leading you to understand that Jesus is the new Passover lamb. Jesus will die and his people will not. Jesus will die and his people will not. For the Passover lamb is marching himself right into his death. Marching himself right into his death and that's what everybody misses about this text. The Pharisees, the crowds, the disciples, they all think of this event one way or the other but none of them realize that he is marching himself to his own death. Today when I was, or sorry, this week when I was driving around thinking about the sermon and praying, there was a car pulled up next to me, it had a bumper sticker, it caught my attention, I couldn't stop thinking about it for two days, bumper sticker said this, no one is coming, it is up to us, no one is coming, it is up to us. I had to go and Google it to find out what in the world this was a reference to. And they said it's for for police officers, for first responders, for military, for them to kind of show that the responsibility is theirs. No one else is coming in to rescue. No one else is coming to make things right. So they're the ones with the pressure. No one is coming. It is up to us. And I thought just how sad that would be if that were true. No one is coming. It is up to us. But I think the reason that I felt like that was so sad, the reason that it stuck with me for a couple days is I think you live like that. I think I live like that. That really, ultimately, we're on our own. Our problems are problems, our suffering is our suffering. No one is coming, it is up to us. And this moment where Jesus marches into Jerusalem is a reminder and an encouragement That it is not true that no one is coming. He has come. And not only has he come, but he's coming back. So someone is coming. And hallelujah, no, it's not up to you. Let's see how Jesus engages. I just wrote down some words that I want to talk through as we look at this text. First of all, Jesus is sovereign. What I mean in that is that Jesus shows his control, his control, his plan. Applied perfectly through this situation. And that's important to know because it looks, in the next couple of days, it's going to look like things get very out of control. But look with me in verses 28 through 34. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you untying it you shall say this the Lord has need of it so those were so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt and they said, the Lord has need of it and they brought it to Jesus with all of these important words coming to fruition in these last couple of chapters in the gospel why does it tell this? bizarre little vignette, kind of twice. Why waste the verses? He like sort of tells what's gonna happen about how to go get the donkey, and then he tells that exactly what he said was going to happen takes place so that they get a donkey. And you're like, all right, I think we get it. He got a donkey. But I think what it's showing us, remember, the disciples even though they didn't get it, they were watching the most closely. And they were about to watch the man that they followed around for three years be put to death. They're about to scatter into the dark and then join together again in a room quietly with the door locked. And they're gonna just be rerunning these stories of what it was like and who Jesus was in his head, these stories over and over again. Remember we talked about the transfiguration, Jesus, has Peter, James, and John, and he says, don't even tell the other fellows. Don't tell anybody until I rise again. He has these stories so that when they can deal with the the present pain, they can look back and realize there was a plan in all of this. He knew what he was doing. And that's why I think he tells them this story here is that It's not important about the untie it. Okay, they're going to ask you about it. Say the Lord needs it. Oh, look, you untied it. They asked you about it. The Lord needs it. It's so that as these guys are thinking about it in the coming days, we'll say every single thing that he said happened just as he said it. Why would that be a comfort? Because when they're going through the worst of it, the sadness and the loss and the grief, they're going through the worst of it, they can be reminded that even though it looks bad, God was in control. Jesus knows what he was doing. And the reason that I tell you that is not just so that you know when Jesus laid down his life, he did it on purpose and it was his plan, but also so that as you face the darkest hours, the worst moments, the loss, you can know for certain that even though it seems really bad, God can still move. God still works in dark places to bring light. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Genesis fifty twenty. Joseph has been beaten and sold into slavery by his brothers. All of these terrible things have happened, and yet God has used it to put Joseph in this spot where he can actually rescue his family from famine. He can gather them up and rescue them into Egypt. And his brothers are confused as why Joseph would forgive them and Joseph says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so he rescues Israel and he keeps them in Egypt. Egypt and you know what happens in Egypt, the people get too numerous and then they become slaves in Egypt. And so God rescues his people from Egypt, leaving them the Passover sign. The Bible over and over again rehearses on every single page is that there is going to be bad stuff that happens, but God still moves. That God still brings good out of darkness. God still brings light out of darkness and good out of badness. And the reason that I want you to know that is Joseph's brothers had sinned in that. And I think we think, yes, God is good and he has a plan and he is sovereign if we're playing by the rules. God has a plan and it's good and sovereign if we're playing by the rules. But as soon as we mess up, as soon as we make mistakes, as soon as we willfully sin against him, God's plan is out the window. Friends, be encouraged that God takes our weakness into account even in his plans. Peter tries to stop him from going to the cross. God moves. He shows that he's sovereign. It's not just in this one passage. He shows that he is in control of his destiny. We've seen it in other passages. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when they come out to get him, they come with, with swords and with shields, and they come out to get him. Judas has turned his back on him at that point and betrayed him, and Jesus sort of meets them on their way out. Now, there would have been a lot of people there, we just we think about it from our like our felt books growing up in Sunday school that there's like the 12 disciples and there's 12 soldiers but they would have come more than 100 people to come and get Jesus. You would have heard the swords and the shields clanging in the night marching their way to him and Jesus walks up to them went out and says who is it you want and they say the whole crowd says Jesus of Nazareth and he replies I am he. And when Jesus said, I am he, they all draw back and fall to the ground. Now this is the group of people who've come to arrest him. A man who's shown no violence. And when he shows up, they say, who is it? He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. They all fall on the ground on their faces. I tell you that to say he was totally in control, even of his arrest. Even when Pontius Pilate says, Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? And he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. And he said, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is totally in control of his life. And friends, Jesus is totally in control of yours too that means the very minutes that you're in right now do not escape him one bit and even when the minutes are ugly and hard you can be confident that God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose that means there are things that are good that will come out of your life and your story that you can't possibly foresee now But you're supposed to look back and say, just like he can bring good out of his arrest, just like he can bring good out of his cross, I trust that he can bring good out of my story too. You see, he's teaching the disciples to look at something and say, he told us about the donkey and then we got the donkey. He told us about the cross and then he got the cross. Just because something looks out of control doesn't mean it's out of control. We see that he's sovereign in this. We also see that he's resolved, resolved. There's this glorious passage earlier in Luke that says this, when the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Meaning the disciples are there, they wanna have him be sort of this famous itinerant teacher. Maybe they want him to be this Israelite king like Solomon. The religious leaders there just want him to be quiet, to stop saying the things that he's saying. Rome there just wants him to go away because he's making a fuss. And Jesus is the only one who knows exactly what's gonna happen, and he goes through with it anyway. He sets his face to Jerusalem. So he's in control and he's resolved, and then he's gentle. Look with me in verse 35. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it and he rode along and they spread their cloaks along the road. I know that you might not see the gentleness pop off the page right there, but here's what's going on as a backdrop. When Judah Maccabeus came to set Israel free from its captors, when he came and when he won, he was sort of crowned king, his followers went and got palm branches and they cut palm branches, and they waved them, and they laid them on the ground, and this is when he came in as if he's the coming king to set Israel free from its captors. They get palm branches, they lay cloaks on the ground. He would have come in in a war horse. And see, that's what they were expecting. They were expecting someone, a king who is strong, who comes for the strong, and that's what they miss about Jesus, Jesus is a king who is humble, who comes for the weak. Jesus is a king who is humble, who comes for the weak. That means some of you who can barely get through the day, who can barely get through the day, with the responsibilities that you have, with the stress level, with the anxiety, with the depression, with the sense of feeling overwhelmed, the ones who feel like, king, this king comes for those who are weak. We miss him when we think he's the king of the strong. In fact, The religious leaders don't like him because he's not the king of the strong, the king of the good, the king of the rule followers. They don't like him because he refuses to be that. Instead, he's the king of the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the drunks. He comes for people who don't think they're worthy, and he ignores people that think they're worthy. Jesus comes in gentleness. John Milne says it this way to commentator. He says, Jesus doesn't come on a war horse like Judas Maccabee or Solomon. He moves majestically forward in procession to his throne, a throne constructed by enemies, the throne of the cross. Think about this in context. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Solomon had 12,000 horses and Jesus has to borrow a donkey. High and mighty, lowly and gentle. Dane Ortland says it this way. Looking inside ourselves, he's saying looking inside ourselves, we can, only, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate harshness only from heaven. Looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness. Gentleness. Instead of marching with thousands on this brilliant, powerful, majestic war horse, he uses a borrowed donkey to communicate that he comes gentle for the lowly. So if you yourself have felt beaten down, you can't live a good life and you keep living a sinful life. You can't do the things you're supposed to do and you keep doing the things you're not supposed to do and you feel beaten down and lowly. Jesus comes for the lowly. Jesus comes humbly for the lowly. He's embodying this prophecy, Zechariah nine. It says this, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes to you lowly. Remember he said, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am lowly, gentle of heart, humble. Do you remember that? He's telling you what he's like. And it's not someone who shakes his fist or finger in your face. And it's not somebody who crosses his arms and taps his foot in anger. It's somebody who says, come, follow me. I know you don't get it all. Follow me. Keep asking questions. Oh, I see that you've fallen. Of course you were going to fall. That's why you needed a savior. Stand back up. Follow me. Oh, I see that you're feeling proud about yourself. It's okay. Keep following me. I know that you're struggling and discouraged. It's okay. Keep following me. I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. Do you see that? You will never follow Jesus if he's this demanding, angry father figure or boss who looks at you as if to say, you keep up. Instead, he says, come and follow. I've got you, I've got you. You see the lowliness and the gentleness in Jesus despite how, the fact that he's so misunderstood. You see it in verse 35? When they thought they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set it on Jesus and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way, down the mountain of olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You see in this text, we have the crowds, we have the interested listeners, we have the Pharisees, and nobody knows what's going on. They're actually saying Hosanna, it means save us. So picture the irony here. It's a group of people, different kinds of people, different roles in life, and they're yelling Hosanna, save us, save us, and it's beautifully ironic because they're there saying save us from Rome, save us from these evil occupiers, but they're saying the right words because they're saying to the king of Israel, the king of all nations, save us, save us. And sadly, some of these same voices in four days will be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You see, this is where they kind of realize that Jesus is the king, but they don't don't get it. They don't fully understand. They kind of get something about Jesus, but they don't get it all, and we do this too. Sometimes we think Jesus is about saving one group of people. Saving a handful of, group of people, uh, the good people, the thoughtful people, the sorry people. And We don't understand that Jesus is about saving all of the nations. We think that Jesus has come to build our little neighborhood. And he's come to restore all things. We think that Jesus has come to make us feel good about ourselves. And he's come to change the whole world. You see, just like them, we miss what he's coming for. He's not the disciples who the disciples were hoping he was. They think he's going to bring them prominence and because of him they will be scattered as liars. They think he's going to bring them life and because of him all of them but one will die. They think he's going to bring them power and he's just set aside all his power for utter weakness. They think he will bring them greatness and instead they experience persecution. They think he will dignify Israel by being Israel's hero and when in reality comes as the king of all nations. They think he's coming to bring war when in reality he's coming to bring eternal peace. They don't get it. Even after he dies and comes back, so he dies, he kills sin, Kills the devil's efforts. He kills death. Raises from the dead. And he gets with his disciples again. And and acts. Not even in the gospels. In acts. So the next step. The step forward of the church. They look at him and they're like, hey, you're back. This is amazing. Is now when you're going to become the king of Israel? And the reason that I love that question is it shows so much patience of Jesus. We think Jesus is not used to having patience, not used to having people who take so long to get him, but that's all who he's been dealing with. Think about the tribes of Israel, think about the judges over and over again. You're like, why can't they get the lesson? Why do they keep doing what's right in their own eyes And the tribes of Israel? Why Why do they keep running back to idols? And then you see to the disciples and you're like, why do they keep not getting who he is? It's so that we can look at our lives and say, when Jesus sees us, he sees us with the same patience and gentleness that he sees them. Jesus is used to people who are slow learners. So if you're just now dialing in, it's okay that it takes a while. Keep listening, keep following. He is used to people who don't get it. He is used to people who ask questions. But remember, I want you to see this. He's mainly misunderstood. He's misunderstood. The religious people wanted him to come for the rule followers, for the ones who did it right, knew the right people, born from the right families, who did the right thing. And Jesus instead says he's coming for the outsiders, the left out, the lonely, and those who are lost. And so those hate him. And its application for us is that the story of Jesus is always, always offensive to religious people. It's always offensive to religious people because what he does is he gathers up the unlikely, not the likely. And there are some of us who have struggled our whole lives with feeling like, of course, I'm a good candidate for grace. I try, I pay attention, I take notes, I go to church, I serve, of course I'm a good candidate for grace. Having not even possibly considered that maybe because you think you're a good candidate for grace, you're not a candidate at all. And then there's the other side, there's those people who always get it wrong and always say it wrong and always do it wrong and can't turn it around and you think there is no possible way that I'm on that list. And be startled to know that that's exactly who he's making the list for. There's this great story in the Sally Lloyd-Jones Bible. If you don't have the Sally Lloyd-Jones Jesus Storybook Bible, please get it. There's this great story she tells about Naaman. Naaman, this general, and he's not an Israelite. He's a foreign general, and he has leprosy. It's going to kill him, and he doesn't know what to do. But one of his slave girls is actually an Israelite. And she tells Naaman, instead of just letting him die, she tells Naaman that he should go see Elisha and Elisha can heal him. And Naaman is this important general and he travels to go and see an Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Elisha's like, just go bathe in that river seven times, you'll be clean. And Naaman leaves angrily. He's like, don't you know who I am? I'm a big deal. And he's about to take off and leave town. And his like, second in command begs with him. and He's like, come on. Why would you come all this way and not listen to the prophet? So sure enough, Naaman gets into the water and washes seven times and his skin comes out and it is totally clean of leprosy. Naaman can't believe it. Sally Lloyd-Jones says it this way, all Naaman needed was nothing. It was the one thing Naaman didn't have. When Jesus comes for his people, He's looking at you and saying, all you need is nothing. Don't let it be the one thing you don't have. In verse 40, he says, let, him, let the stones cry out. Let the people cry out. Now is the time. And I want to show you two more things, and then we'll close. Jesus is heartbroken here. This is not snarky. I told you I was right, Pharisees. I told you I was right, chief priests. I told you I was right... Israel, look at this in verse 41. And when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from her eyes. What he's saying is it's so sad that if anyone should have known It was Israel, it was Jerusalem, it was these people. They've seen and yet they've not seen. And Jesus is sad about it. He weeps. So What I'm asking you to do is don't be somebody who sees and doesn't see. Don't be somebody who listens but doesn't take action. Don't be one who hears the prophet and ignores him. The sadness of Jesus at Jerusalem shows his desire for people to be saved. And then lastly, this loneliness. You know, the disciples have been waiting three years for this moment, for this ride, this powerful moment. And Israel's been waiting for 400 years, this this moment where the Messiah shows up and creation has been longing since the serpent in the garden for this moment. And so it seems like it's this perfect moment where creation's been waiting and Israel's been waiting and the disciples have been waiting and now there are thousands of people there and they're shouting, Hosanna to the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's thousands. It says it's literally people as far as the eye can see because of these little roads in Jerusalem, thousands of people there. And four days later, there'll be 11 left, 11 people still standing by his side. And a few hours after that, those 11 will disappear into the dark. All of creation is waiting for this moment, and he has to go it alone. And he does it for you. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that Jesus isn't exactly who we'd like him to be. Fix of all of our relationships, fill up our bank accounts, take away all our disease. Jesus is not exactly who we would like him to be, but we are so grateful for who he is. We ask, God, that you would teach us gratitude for who he is, rather than to stop reveling in the disappointment of what we were hoping that he'd be. Everyone turned his back on your son, even you, so that you would never turn your back on us. We thank him and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Everyone turned his back on your son, even you, so that you would never turn your back on us. We thank him and we thank you in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.